Well, good evening, everyone. I want to welcome you back to Jesus on Prophecy. I hope that you are being blessed by those health topics because there is a direct connection between your physical health and your spiritual health. And we're going to talk about that tonight. Our topic is Jesus on faith and fitness for the crisis ahead. And so let's begin with a word of prayer. Loving Father, You are God and we are not. And Lord, You know us better than we know ourselves. You know our needs. You know what's good for us. And Lord, You know what's not good for us. And so we're praying You're going to speak directly to our hearts tonight. Show us what You would have us do in these last days. Prepare us for the things that are coming upon the world. And Lord, help us to be faithful even in the little things. And we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off tonight by asking you a question, and that is, does our lifestyle choices really make a difference at the end of time? Does it really matter what we choose or what we don't choose? Is God some sort of a celestial dictator where He just points His finger at us and says, your time is up? Or does He have something better planned for us? Is health a matter of chance or is it a matter of choice? That's really the question that we need to answer tonight. Our choices can either add years to our lives or it can subtract years from our lives. And I am convinced that the devil does everything that he can to pull us away from God, to distract us, to get us off track. He wants to get you in a ditch. And it doesn't matter if it's this ditch or that one or another one. He will do anything and everything that he can to pull you away from God and get you off going in your own direction. That's why more and more it's important to see that our theme for this series has been, if it's in the Bible, I believe it. But if it disagrees with the Bible, then it's not for me. The book of Revelation presents two opponents in this titanic struggle between good and evil. On one side you have Satan the destroyer, and on the other side you have Christ the restorer. Right? Satan is out there trying to take away your freedom by leading you into bondage, by enslaving you in destructive physical habits such as smoking, drinking, drugs, or any other addiction that we may have. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who does what? Who deceives the whole world. And Satan is doing everything that he can to gain control of your mind to deceive you into going into certain lifestyles that we think brings freedom but it actually leads to bondage. And he deceives millions of people into thinking that it doesn't matter about your health as long as your heart is in the right place, as long as your heart is 
in God, right? The way we care for our bodies on earth reveals how we would care for them through all eternity. I just want to pause for a minute and I really want you to think about that because I have to tell you, when I look at that, that really hits home for me. That's something that we really should think about. If you're not taking care of your health now, why would you take care of it later? Right? It's something that we should be doing all of the time. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And 3 John verse 2 says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Here John is telling us that he desires that we would be in good health because good health leads to good spiritual health, right? And so our physical health is very important. And there are a lot of people in the world today who are Christians who say, well, it doesn't really matter if I drink a little bit of alcohol now and then. Or if I do it in moderation, right? That's the popular teaching of today. It doesn't matter what I eat. It doesn't matter what I put in my body. That's where that leads to, right? But the Bible teaches that we are whole persons. And God wants all of you. He wants you completely. He wants you physically. He wants you mentally. He wants you emotionally and spiritually. In fact, God's last day message in the book of Revelation says in Revelation 14, 7, Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come and worship Him who made heaven and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. God is saying in the light of the judgment hour, which we already know, we're already in that time, we are already living in earth's last days, and here we see that God is calling us to give glory to Him. And so the question is, how do we glorify God? And I think it's important to see how the Bible tells us we can give glory to God. Notice Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now that reminds me of the question that we had in our question answer time about abortion, right? There are many women today who say, well, it's my body. Right? But here we see God saying, no, no, you belong to me. Right? I paid a very big price for you. He laid down his life. He shed his blood for you. And your body belongs to him. And so we should take care of it. And we glorify God or we don't glorify him in our physical bodies depending on what we do with them. Here's another one Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So, no matter what we do, we should have in mind that we want to bring glory to God by what we're doing, right? That's what that verse is telling us. And we've already seen in our study, in these last days, God is calling us out of the world. 
He's calling us out of the apostate churches. And He's saying, I am looking for a people in these last days who are going to lay it all on the altar, who are giving it all to Me. He's looking for us to dedicate it all to Him mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. There are some lifestyle practices which destroy our bodies. There is scientific evidence that indicates that smoking is one of the world's most deadly killers. And you know what? That's not something that's been around for a long time. It's relatively new. If you look at 6,000 years of Earth's history, it's relatively within the last what, 60, maybe 100 years that we now know scientifically for certain that smoking is bad for you. Dr. Linus Pauling, one of the few scientists to win two Nobel Prizes, says every cigarette you smoke takes 14.5 minutes off of your life. That means if you smoke a pack of cigarettes a day, which most smokers do, That takes seven hours off of your life per day. That's pretty serious, isn't it? But you know what that means? That means you're committing suicide slowly. Isn't that what it means? Some researchers in the United Kingdom have concluded that smoking is the single biggest cause of cancer in the world. In the UK, smoking kills five times more people than road accidents, overdoses, murder, suicide, and HIV all combined. Studies from Europe, Japan, and North America have shown that nine out of ten lung cancers are caused by the chemicals in tobacco. Smokers have a 25% higher risk of heart attack than non-smokers. Nicotine causes your arteries to shrink. The blood flow is restricted, which causes strokes and heart attacks. Blood clots, all caused from smoking. And then secondhand smoke is worse, right? I remember as a boy, my mom went to the doctor, had to get a checkup on something, and, and uh, the doctor asked her, how long you been smoking? She said, I've never smoked a day in my life. He said, well, do you live with someone who smokes? She said, yeah, my husband smokes. And the doctor told her, secondhand smoke is worse than the smoke that the smoker's getting. And so as we are bringing that into our home, into our vehicles, into our presence, and especially those who have small children, they are bringing that into them and affecting their health. But the power of God is there to enable us to quit. And by the grace of God, we can be free of these addictions. And it may not be smoking for you. It may be something else. Maybe it's food. And so we want to think about these things in these last days. Revelation 3 verse 21 says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. I don't know if you realize it or not, but the Christian life is all about overcoming. If you go to Revelation 2 and 3 and you look at all seven letters to the seven churches, 
that are a picture of church history from the time of Christ all the way to His second coming, you will see that there are some churches that Christ admonishes. There are some that He praises, and there are some that He does both. But to all of them, He says, to those who overcome, I will. It's all about overcoming. It's about overcoming Satan. It's about overcoming temptation. It's about overcoming addictions. It's about overcoming self. It's about overcoming the world. It's about overcoming just about everything that the devil will throw at us. And so that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about overcoming all of these different things. And Revelation declares that those who enter the gates of heaven will not be defiling their bodies. Quitters always win. By the grace of God, you can win. You know, the fascinating thing about the human body is that God fearfully and wonderfully made us, and the human body is actually able to heal itself. There are people that have smoked for 20, 30 years and then quit and their lungs begin to repair themselves. People who take drugs or alcohol and those things your body can repair to a degree. Even those who have had a stroke and you're missing brain connections, your brain can reconnect around some of the damage that's there from a stroke or other things. And so... We have a wonderful body that God intended for us to take care of, and He designed it so that it can heal, but we have to do our part, right? The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, but where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So no matter how strong that addiction is, Jesus is stronger. No matter how strong that nicotine is, Jesus is stronger. No matter how strong that attraction to caffeine is, God is stronger, right? God can help us through those things. And you know, the interesting thing about this is as I have been pastoring for for, uh, 15 years now, I have prayed with people and I have seen God just take away the desire to drink. Take away the taste for, for smoking or, or uh, some drug habit. I've seen Him do that. And then I've seen other people that have prayed and God allows them to struggle to get through it. But we have to realize that God knows what's best for that individual. And it may be that through struggling through it that God can help them in the long run. And I can tell you, I have had that experience myself. I know when I first gave my heart to the Lord, He took away the desire to drink alcohol. I didn't even ask Him to. It was just gone. But then I also smoked. And He allowed me to struggle through that and to fight through that, but it made me stronger in the end. And it allowed me to see if I truly loved Him enough to do it. Because here's the thing. You ever heard someone say, oh yeah, I can quit. I've done it a hundred times. Right? But if we're going to quit doing those things that are bad for us, we've got to have a desire in our heart. That's the first and foremost thing. We've got to want it. And we've got to want it bad. 
And then God will help us, right? He will help us to overcome those things. But He's not going to take away your free will. Jesus is stronger than any enslaving physical habit. And when we present our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice, Jesus lives out His life through us. He gives you the strength and the ability to do it. When Jesus was on this earth, He healed people. He came and He brought life and He can do the same thing for us. I want to show you something that Jesus said. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, that's going to be page 1118. And I want you to notice what He says in verse 7 and 8. Matthew 7, verse 7 and 8. Jesus says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Jesus is talking about a spiritual power here that is available to help us to overcome any addiction that we may have. That's what he's saying, right? He's saying, you ask for it, I'll give it to you. Because he wants you to be healthy, right? He's going to accept us just the way we are. You can be a heroin addict and he'll accept you. But he loves us too much to leave us that way. He wants us to be as healthy as we possibly can be. And He promises to give us the spiritual power to help us overcome those addictions. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus delivers us from the slavery of sin. Romans 6 verse 16 says, Do you not know that whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey? So if we obey that craving, if we obey that carnal desire, then we're going to obey that. If we are moving in that direction, if we are desiring those things, then that's where we're headed. But if we obey Him, if we serve Him, then that will change the things we do. Amen? And He can give us victory over alcohol, over drugs, over caffeine, over any addictive habit that we have. And so there are some people that fight the battle of the bottle. And they struggle with that. But we can come to God and we can ask Him and He will help us and deliver us from those things. Now, there are some people that struggle more than others, right? But God works miracles to those who trust Him. And there's a lot of confusion in the world today and even in the church. We've talked about this. A little bit of error mixed in truth over thousands of years and pretty soon it's taught as truth. And there are many Christians today that believe that it's okay to drink alcohol as long as you do it in moderation. 
right? And they can even point to a Bible passage or something that seems to indicate that. But remember, the Bible all has to be fit together like pieces of a puzzle. We've got to take it as a whole and we've got to look at it and see what it's saying. And we know that Jesus loves us. We know that He wants the very best for us. And so why would we even tamper with alcohol even in moderation, even a little bit here or a little bit there? Because those things lead to the next step and to the next step. That's like, uh, uh, you know, no one wakes up one morning and decides they're going to be a heroin addict. It doesn't happen that way. It starts with what they call gateway drugs. Right? You start with smoking cigarettes. And then you go to marijuana. And then you go to cocaine. And then you go to something else, right? And it leads you to heroin. That's how it works. And so one small step leads to the next and the next and the next. And those are the things that we want to avoid. Uh, Drinking alcohol cuts off the blood supply to your brain. It cuts off oxygen to your brain and therefore your brain cells die. And the question that I have for you is how does God communicate with us? He communicates through the brain, right? Not through our hands, not through our feet. He communicates through the brain. So is it any wonder to us why the devil brewed alcohol in the laboratories of hell Because alcohol destroys brain cells. And he wants to cut off your communication with God. And that's why Solomon says in Proverbs 20, verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is what? Not wise. Right? You ever thought about why... Pilots are not allowed to drink 24 hours before they're going to fly? You ever thought about why medical students are told not to drink the night before they take their state board exams? There's a reason for that. It's because alcohol impairs your judgment. I remember years ago, I had to take a test that was a worldwide test. And only 3% pass it brutal test it took me three and a half hours to take that test and when i was done my brain was mush i was mentally exhausted and i was physically sound right i hadn't been drinking or anything else imagine what it would have been like but i passed that test but you need to be able to think you need to be able to reason and the devil is doing everything that he can to get us away from that And in these last days, we want to be as mentally sound as we can be. Proverbs 23, verse 29 says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those are good questions, aren't they? But fortunately, he doesn't leave us to guess. He answers them. Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, that's who has bloodshot eyes, that's who has a hangover, that's whose brain hurts, right? Because they've killed off some brain cells. 
Proverbs 23 goes on to say, Do not gaze at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Is there anyone here who would knowingly, openly walk into a viper pit? We wouldn't do that, right? Because it could bite us. These things bite you too. It may not seem like it, but that's exactly what happens. So why are we going to put some things into our body that are going to poison us or be like a venomous snake? Proverbs 23 continues, Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. And so some people say, But pastor, what about that story of Jesus and the wedding of Canaan? Didn't He turn water into wine? Wasn't Jesus accused of being a wine-bibber? And so clearly God is okay with me drinking a little bit, right? That's what people say. But we can't take one verse and build our Bible doctrine around that. Right? We have got to look at the whole of Scripture and ask ourselves the question, do we see anywhere in Scripture that God is openly telling us that it's okay to drink socially? Let's see exactly what Jesus was doing here. John chapter 2, verse 6 and 7 says, Now there were set there six water pots of stone filled to the brim. And so here we have these water pots that are filled up with water and He turns them into wine. Now, the problem that we have, and we talked about this already in our question and answer time, and that was the problems really with the English language, isn't it? Because when it says wine, we naturally assume that that's talking about alcoholic drink because in the United States... That's what we refer to alcoholic grape juice, right? But if it's just unfermented, what do we call it? We don't call it wine. We call it grape juice. And so we make a distinction. But when we just say wine, we have to ask ourselves, what kind of wine is this talking about? Because there are some times in the Bible where it says new wine. Sometimes it says old wine. And sometimes it just says wine. And we've got to look at the context and figure out what's being spoken of. So what kind of wine was this? There's two kinds. There's the fermented wine, which is an alcoholic beverage. And then there's the pure juice of the grape, which is non-alcoholic. And the only way we can know for sure is look at the context in the Bible and put all of the Bible together and ask ourselves, is it really talking about Him making alcoholic wine? Isaiah 65 verse 8 says, As the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. I don't know if you realize this or not, but there are many scientific research studies that have been done on red wine. And they say red wine is good for you because there are good properties in it. But you know what they don't tell you? Those good properties 
aren't in there because it's wine. They're in there because of the grapes. And you get those good properties from the grape juice and you don't have to have the alcohol along with it. But they don't tell you that, right? Because they're salesmen. They're trying to sell their product. And so I want you to look at what Jesus did here and I want you to think soberly about what He did. It says that there were six jars there and that each jar held between 20 and 30 gallons of water. So that's between 120 and 180 gallons of wine that Jesus made. That's enough wine to get the whole community drunk. Now do we honestly believe that Jesus in one part of His Word, in Proverbs and in Psalms, talks about you know, wine is a brawler and, and strong drink and we shouldn't drink those things. And now He's going to make enough alcohol to get a whole community drunk? I don't think so. That is just used by people who want to justify what they're doing rather than looking at the clear Word of God. I can't believe that Jesus created 180 gallons of wine at a wedding to get the whole community drunk. Did Jesus create enough fermented wine to get the whole village drunk? Certainly not. And then you think about the person who tasted that wine. It was taken to the person who was in charge of the festivities. And notice in John chapter 2, verse 10, it says, And He said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk... Then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Here, the leader of the banquet is saying it's good wine. Right? And so here we see it showing what kind of wine it was. It's the kind that's good for you. Right? You've kept the good wine until last. And what is the good wine? It is unfermented. And the Lord created it so sweet and so smooth and so magnificent that He just said, wow, this is the best I've ever had. It doesn't destroy the brain cells. Think about this for a minute. As Jesus was hanging on the cross, they had a sponge with some, what do they call it? Gull? which was supposed to deaden the pain, even as He's hanging on the cross, He wouldn't take anything that would have affected His mind. Why would He ask us or provide for us something that would do something that He wouldn't even do in that moment of excruciating pain? One of the leading causes of deaths is automobile accidents caused with alcohol-related incidents. And think about this for a minute. Nobody gets into a car after drinking and says, let's go kill some people. That doesn't happen. But the devil has deceived you into believing that you're okay and that you can keep going. And that's exactly what he's doing. There's only one way to be free And that is to give our bodies to Jesus and ask Him to give us the power 
to overcome those things. God promises to give us abundant life. And in the Old Testament, He gave Israel one of the most wonderful promises. And I want to show that to you. So turn with me in your Bibles to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Page 78, Exodus chapter 15. I want to show you something here that I think is just absolutely astounding and powerful. Exodus chapter 15, that's page 78. And I want you to notice what it says in verse 26. The Bible says, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. You see what God is saying? He's saying, if you keep my commandments, if you keep my statutes, if you keep my health laws, you won't have any of the diseases of the Egyptians on you. That's what he said there, right? Psalm 105, verse 37 says, And there was none feeble among His tribes. When God's people were following His directions, when they were keeping His health laws, there was not one single sick person among them. Isn't that powerful? God is promising that if we do what He says, if we keep those health laws that He's giving to us, that we will be healthier, we will be happier, and we will be more spiritually sound. And so when the Israelites followed His plan, they were healthy. Now, there were studies that were done on Egyptian mummies to confirm if His statement was true or not. They wanted to test the truthfulness of God's Word. And so that's why they did these studies on these Egyptian mummies. And when these researchers evaluated the health practices of the Egyptians, they came to some astounding conclusions on health and disease in the ancient world. They did an autopsy on Pharaoh of Egypt, Ramses II, and the autopsy showed that he had completely clogged arteries. The assumption was that he died of a massive heart attack. A British researcher by the name of Dr. Rosalie David of the Manchester University in England performed multiple autopsies on Egyptian mummies. She discovered that the Egyptians were dying of the same diseases as our Western society today. Dr. Claude Rufus did x-rays on 14,000 mummies. And you know what he discovered? The Egyptians died of heart disease, cancer, arthritis, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, rheumatism, and sexually transmitted diseases. Why? Because they were not following God's plan for health. Those are all the diseases that we have in America today. 
Those are all health-style-related diseases. So, is there anywhere in Scripture that it tells us what the best diet is for us? In fact, there is, and I want to take you there. So let's go back to creation. Genesis chapter 1, first page of the Bible. And I want you to notice what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 1. When God created Adam and Eve, He told them what He had given them to eat. Notice what it says, Genesis 1, verse 29. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Here we see that God in His original design for man was that we would eat nuts and berries and fruit. And then after the flood, He also included vegetables. And you can go and you can read that further on in Genesis. But that's what He intended for us to eat. In other words, the Eden diet was a vegetarian diet. That's what God had planned for us. God did not have Adam and Eve eating flesh food. Adam wasn't going and killing something to eat for lunch. Right? It was God's desire that Adam and Eve would live a long, abundant life. And the original diet in Genesis is a vegetarian diet. And science reveals that that is the best thing for us. You know, there's some people that say, well, you've got to eat meat to get protein. You ever heard people say that? Well, where did the animals get the protein from? From eating the plants, right? God intended for us to eat a plant-based diet. And that's why you will find that most Seventh-day Adventists are vegetarians. Not all, but most. And you know what? Think about this for a minute. The Bible says that there's no more death once we get to heaven and we get back to the new earth, right? So we are going to be Sabbath-keeping vegetarians for all eternity. So that's why a lot of people say, well, I might as well get used to it now. And we might as well eat what God intended for us to eat. Flesh food was not the original diet that God gave to Adam and Eve. And it's very interesting that God did allow for eating of flesh after the flood. And there's a reason for that. Because the flood wiped out all the vegetation, right? But it's interesting, if you go back and you do a study, you'll discover that they lived hundreds of years before the flood. Adam lived 900 years. But then immediately after the flood... It dropped down to 140 years or less. Today we're lucky to get 80, 90, 100 years, right? Do you think that there's a correlation between that's the time they began eating meat and the lifespan went down? I think we'd be foolish if we didn't at least examine it, right? And say there's a possibility. And so God instructed Noah to bring animals on board but I want you to notice that Noah gave him instructions and he made a distinction 
between clean and unclean meat. Genesis chapter 7, verse 1 and 2 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Here we see God telling him to bring more clean animals than unclean. And there was a reason for that. Because they were going to need food. And so God made a distinction between the animals and He said some are good for eating and some are not. And He called the ones that are not good for eating unclean. And there's a reason for that. Because all of those that He called unclean are scavengers. They eat all of the garbage of the earth and because they do, they carry diseases with them. And so He says, don't eat those things. God said there's two kinds of animals. There's clean and there's unclean. And He made that distinction so that we would live healthier lives. But meat eaters who are seeking to move to a healthier style of life will begin by following the biblical model of eating only clean meats. Now, here's another deception that has gotten into the church. A little error mixed with truth over thousands of years and pretty soon it's being taught. And what's being taught today is that it doesn't matter what you eat. That it's all okay now, right? There's no distinction between clean and unclean. That's the popular teaching. But friends, that is not a biblical teaching. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He doesn't change His mind. If He were going to change His mind, it wouldn't be in such an obscure way that we'd have to try and figure it out. And so we need to understand the difference between clean and unclean animals. The Bible gives some very clear instructions to which animals we should or shouldn't eat. So let's look at them. There's two places in the Bible that you can look at, and you can look at this for yourself later. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 14, or you can go to Leviticus chapter 11. Those are the two places that make the distinction between clean and unclean meat. So let's go to Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. That's going to be page 219. And I want you to notice what God says to Moses, what He's saying to us. Deuteronomy 14, page 219. And notice what it says starting in verse 6. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoofs split into two parts, and that chews the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, of those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such as these, the camel, the hare, the rock hyrax, for they chew the cud, but they do not have cloven hooves. They are unclean for you. Also, the swine is unclean for you because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. You shall not eat their flesh or touch their dead carcass." 
And so here we see God tells us some clean animals and He says there is unclean animals. And the clean animals are those that have a split hoof and chew the cud. Right? So what kind of animals is that? Well, first of all, what does chewing the cud mean? Chewing the cud means that this animal takes in, chews, swallows, and then pulls it back up and chews it some more. And the reason that they do that is to get rid of the toxins and the poisons before they're absorbed into the body. And so, here's some examples of clean animals. Cows, deer, antelope, buffalo. Those are the kind of animals that have split hooves and chew the cud, right? So what kind of animals are unclean? Well, we looked at those. There was the camel. Anybody here ever had a camel sandwich? No, there's a reason that you don't eat camels. They chew the cud, but they don't have a split hoof. And so God says don't do it. They eat a lot of garbage, right? How about pigs? Nobody would ever eat one of those, right? No? People eat them all the time, right? But God says don't eat them. And why? Because they eat just about anything. And they carry a tremendous amount of disease with them. Notice what the psalmist says. Psalm 84, verse 11. No good thing will be withheld from those who walk uprightly. So... If swine was good for you, would God withhold it from you? According to that verse? No. But He says don't eat those things that are unhealthy. Pork has the highest cholesterol source of any meat out there. So, is pork good for you? No. God wouldn't withhold any good thing from you. So, don't eat it. Here's another thing. Dr. McNaught, a health researcher, found that one of every four pork specimens had living trichina larvae in it. Trichina are parasite worms. And you ever heard of trichinosis? That's where it comes from, right? And if you take a piece of swine flesh and you look at it under the microscope you can see the larvae and their eggs in it and by the way when you eat that the eggs hatch in your stomach the acid in your stomach does not kill them they get into your bloodstream and that's where you get a lot of rheumatism and arthritis from I'll give you a a perfect example of this. My mother had arthritis so bad she could hardly move some days. And she quit eating pig and it was gone. It's a powerful lesson to us that a lot of the diseases that we have are because we're eating unclean meat. Someone says, oh yeah, but now we cook it all the way. 
we have ways of processing it better than they had back then, right? So let's think about that. You're going to kill all of the all of the larvae and all of the eggs, and then you're going to eat them, right? But they still have the disease in them, even though you've killed them. And so now you're introducing that into your body. The New Testament speaks of those who would destroy themselves through doing things their own way rather than following Jesus' way. Philippians chapter 3, verse 19 says this, "...whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame." This is saying those who set their mind to do their own thing, right? Right? I know that's what the Bible says, but I just like ham. Right? I'm going to do it anyway. And it says that our God is our belly. You know, your brain should be the center of function of your body. Your brain has to take control and your brain has to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Many Christians don't understand the real issue. They love Jesus But they have that attitude that says, I don't care what you say. I'm going to do what I want. And then we have the diseases that we have in America. Our God is the God of the universe and He invites us to give our bodies to Him. Well, what about fish? Moses said in Deuteronomy 14, verse 9 and 10, These you may eat of all that are in the waters. You may eat all that have fins and scales. Jesus ate fish. It's okay to eat fish if they have fins and scales, right? Trout, bass, perch, walleye, pike. Yeah, those are all good fish to eat. We have to be careful though. Because now, in the end of time, we even had a problem with that, right? A lot of them carry a lot of mercury. So you want to eat low amounts of fish, right? But what does that leave out? That leaves out all of the bottom feeders. And whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. It is unclean to you. Like catfish. They eat all the garbage off the bottom, right? Lobster, crab... Catfish, clams, all of those bottom feeders, the toxins that get into the water are heavier than the water. They sink to the bottom and then all those bottom feeders get all those toxins and then you eat them. And God says, don't do it. Cut it out of your diet. Well, then there are people that say, well, what about Peter's vision, right? Because Peter had this vision where it had all these unclean meats and God said, eat. I want to take you there, so turn with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, it's going to be page 1266. There are people that will take this part of the Bible and they will say, see, God told Peter he could eat unclean meat and so it's okay with me. That's just a person who wants to justify what they're doing. Because let me show you what's going on here. In Acts chapter 10, there is a man by the name of Cornelius who is seeking a deeper relationship with God. 
And an angel comes to him and tells him, go send men to get Peter. He's in Joppa at Simon the Tanner's house. And so Cornelius sends some men. And while they're coming, Peter is up on the roof of the house and he goes into a trance. He has a vision. And notice what the Bible says starting in verse 11. And he saw heaven open up in this trance, and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners descended to him and let down to earth, and in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now here's the problem. People look at that one passage and they say, See, God told Peter that he shouldn't call unclean meat unclean. Now God's calling it clean and now it's okay to eat. That's what they say. But that's a total distortion of the text, right? Because that's not the story at all. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before or not, but Jesus was the greatest teacher this planet has ever had. The greatest. And you know what made Him the greatest? He could take those things that are unknown and He could help you understand them repeatedly throughout the Gospels you see Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like. He took things that we were familiar with to explain those things that we didn't know. And that's exactly what He's doing with Peter. He says, Peter, look at all these unclean animals. Eat. And Peter says, no way. I have never eaten anything unclean in my entire life and I will not and Jesus never taught me to. So what's this all about? Peter is in this trance and these men come up looking for him. He comes out of it and and the Holy Spirit says, don't be afraid, go with these men. And so these men are Gentiles. But Peter goes with them. And he's thinking about this vision that he's had. And by the time he gets to Cornelius' house, he's figured it out. Let's see what it is. Look with me in verse 28. Peter comes into the house. He's talking to Cornelius. And he says in verse 28, "...you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company..." with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. God gave him the vision of the unclean meat and told him to eat just to get Peter thinking. He's trying to draw his attention somewhere else. And by the time Peter gets to this Gentile's house who the Jews had considered unclean, by the time he gets there, Peter figures it out and he says, you know I shouldn't be here according to our law. I shouldn't be with you in your house, but God has shown me not to call any 
animal unclean or clean, but not to call any man unclean, right? What was God doing? God was saying, look, you Jews, I gave you the gospel message to give to the world, but you guys have shut yourselves off. You consider everybody who's not a Jew unclean, and I haven't made them unclean, so don't you call them unclean. And Peter goes, he gives them the gospel message, the Holy Spirit is poured out on them, Saul of Tarsus is going to Damascus, He gets knocked off his high horse and he gives his heart to Jesus and now he's the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle to who? The Gentiles and now the Gospel goes to the world. Because God said, don't you call them Gentiles unclean because I haven't. It's not about food. It's not about clean and unclean meats. God was using something that Peter was familiar with to teach him something new. He just needed to get his attention, right? And so it's not about God mysteriously saying, now all these unclean meats are clean. It doesn't work that way. They're still unclean animals. They're still the scavengers of the earth. They still carry a lot of diseases with them no matter how much you cook them. You cook them until it's burnt and those diseases are still in there and you're taking them into your body. John chapter 15, verse 5 says, For without Me you can do nothing. See, that's the thing, right? Without God we can do nothing. Without Christ, we can't give up alcohol. Without Christ, we can't give up unclean foods, smoking, drugs, whatever it might be. Lust, rage. You may be a person who is bitter and angry all the time. You can't do anything about that. That's your carnal nature. But God can change that. God can fix you. And He wants to fix us if we will just listen to Him. And so there's two principles that we need to understand. Without Christ, we can do nothing. But with Him, all things are possible. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me except give up my habit of eating pork. Is that what it says? No, it says I can do all things through Him. When we realize what God is calling us to, it should be easy for us to just give up unclean meat. Never eat it again. I did. There's people here that had to make that decision too, right? And I loved pork. Oh man, I loved ham. Spiral ham was my favorite. But I gave it up. Why? Because God says it's not good for you. And if you truly love God, aren't you going to do what He says? That's what God is calling us to in these last days. Jesus says, come to me. Lay your tobacco on the altar. Lay your alcohol on the altar. Lay those unclean meats on the altar. Whatever your addiction is, maybe it's caffeine. Lay it on the altar. Maybe you have a sex addiction. Lay it on the altar. God can take care of all of those things if we would just give it to Him. God is gathering a group of people in these last days who are going to preserve His law as a testimony 
to the world that His way is the best way. And that includes not only what we put into our bodies, but what we put into our mind. Right? Because what goes into our mind comes out in our life. And so, Revelation 14.7 says, Fear God and give glory to Him. And we should ask ourselves, do we want to give glory to God in what we eat and even in what we allow into our minds? You see, judgment implies responsibility and moral choices. And that's what God is calling us to in these last days. And that includes what we watch, what we listen to, who we hang out with, And so what kind of things should we put into our minds? Let me show you what the Bible says. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. That's going to be page 1351. I want you to notice that God gives us a sort of a litmus test of what kind of things that we should allow to come into our minds. What kind of things we should be watching on TV. Notice what it says, Philippians 4 verse 8. Paul says to us, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's what God is saying that we should allow into our life. And so if you're watching a program where there's sarcasm, tearing people down rather than building up, doesn't fit the litmus test. Murder, it doesn't help, right? It's not what God is asking us to put into our minds and into our lives. And so God is looking for a group of people in these last days who will bring glory to Him in what they eat and what they don't eat, in what they watch and what they don't watch, and even in how we dress. God is looking for us to bring glory to Him. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, it says, I desire that the women adorn themselves in what? Modest apparel. Right? Notice he goes on to say, with propriety and moderation. Now I want you to remember that word moderation, right? Because moderation means that while it's okay to appear becoming and nice, it has limits. That's what moderation is. And notice that Paul is specifically speaking of crossing the line in Christian moderation when he continues and he says, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Here we see that Paul is saying, you've crossed the line when you have braided hair. Now we need to understand that this is not talking about a simple braid or a ponytail in your hair, but it's talking about weaving beads and decorative ornaments and gold and different things into your hair. And he even says, putting on gold and pearls. That would include earrings, rings, necklaces, bracelets, 
Toe rings, right? What do all those things do? What are all those things designed to do? They're all saying, look at me. Right? They're all to draw attention to our bodies, but that's not what God is calling us to. He said, but we are to do which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. What he's saying is instead of having an outward adornment that says, look at me, we should have an inward adornment of good works. Love. Kindness. Mercy. Right? Those are the inward adornments that we should have that don't attract people to us, but attract people to Christ. And that's what he's saying there. Peter says almost the same thing. Peter says, whose adorning let it not be that of outward adorning of the plating of the hair, that's weaving those things in, and of wearing gold or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit which is in the sight of God of great price." Here we see that in these last days, God is calling us out of the world. He's calling us out of the corrupt church system. And He's saying, I want you to be different. I want you to not be attracting attention to yourself of wearing all these things that say, look at me, but rather that say, look at what God is doing. We should be attracting people with a meek and quiet spirit, with love, mercy, kindness, gentleness, self-control, right? Those are the fruits of the Spirit that should be coming out of us and attracting people not to ourselves, but to God. I want you to notice that in Revelation chapter 12, It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Now we know in Bible prophecy that a woman represents a church, right? And so here we have a pure woman. Here we have a woman that's garnished with the sun and the moon and the stars. In other words, she is arrayed in all of the natural beauty that God has given to her. But then you go to Revelation chapter 17 and you see the harlot woman, which represents the apostate church. And how is she decked out? Let's take a look at it. Turn there with me. Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Let's notice the difference. God's church is arrayed in all of the natural beauty, sun and moon and stars. But this harlot woman, this apostate church, Revelation 17 verse 1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away into the spirit and the wilderness, and here it is, 
I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in what? Purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Here we see the difference between the true church and the apostate church. The true church does not have any outward adornment. No jewelry of any kind. And you know what's very interesting too? You go back and you do a study in the Old Testament and every time God's people were wanting to come back to God, the first thing He told them was take off all your jewelry. Because jewelry is what leads us into the world. And so the first thing God would say is every time God's people wanted to repent and wanted to come back to Him, He would say, take off all your jewelry. That's the first thing. And now we see this harlot woman and she's decked out with gold and pearls and, and uh, all kinds of stuff, right? You see the contrast there. A complete difference between the true church and the false church. God is gathering together a group of people that are going to preserve as a testimony for the world that His way of life is best. And that includes not only what we put into our bodies, but what we put into our mind and even what we put on our bodies. And God is calling us to that. He wants to make a distinction between His people and those who belong to the beast. And remember what we talked about? If you're worshiping the beast, you're really worshiping the dragon, right? And so God is calling us to far more than just religion. God is calling us to make a decision for Him. To take a stand for Him and to do things the way He has asked us to. Remember what we've already talked about? The Sabbath is a sign between us and Him. Right? And so is what we wear. So is what we drink. So is what we eat. So is what we bring into our mind. It's all a sign that God is in us. He's empowering us. He's transforming us. He's changing us. And He desires that we would be an example to a world that is lost in error and pagan doctrine and caught up with the world. That's the difference. That's what He's calling us to. And that's a decision that each one of us needs to make. The question is, are we going to stand for Him? Or are we going to do it our own way? And I leave that choice to you. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, Lord, thank You for revealing these things to us. The, the Word of God is so much deeper than we realize. It's not about a superficial a spiritual experience, but it is a surrender to You and allowing You to transform our lives. And You want us to be an example to a world that is truly lost. And You're wanting us to be those that will be just like Jesus. And Lord, You're looking for men and women 
that are going to be looking like Him when you come back to this earth. I believe that's very soon. And so, Lord, our prayer is that You would help us to choose wisely and You would prepare us for the things that are coming upon the world. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.